The number one preventative factor to these moments of extreme violence is having a culture of respect and care for one another. And that's ultimately what bystander intervention is. All of these tactics are designed to de-escalate the situation and show care for the person being harassed and set a boundary about what kind of world we want to live in. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. In the wake of the public killing of Jordan Neely, many of us are now asking ourselves, what would I have done if I was in that subway car? Being a bystander to an uncomfortable or violent event can be scary and confusing and often people aren't equipped with the skills to react. Other times we fall victim to the bystander effect, thinking someone else will take action. Today, Epicenter's Danielle Himes speaks to Emily May, the president and the co-founder of Right to Be. The nonprofit is dedicated to helping people become more responsible bystanders. Throughout the conversation, May emphasizes the five Ds, tactics that Right to Be focuses on when it comes to intervention. So Right to Be is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we started under the name Hollaback in 2005 and have since then really grown to not just address street harassment or gender-based harassment in public space, which was our founding mission, but really to address all forms of hate and harassment, um, including harassment based on ableism or racism or religious identity, uh, sexism, uh, discrimination against gender, gender expression, sexuality, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. Okay. So being a bystander has been a problem for a long time. I feel like a lot of New Yorkers look back to the story of Kitty Genovese and her murder. And now, of course, we have Jordan Neely and the terrible incident where he was killed on the subway. So bystander intervention training kind of seems extremely relevant right now. So that is obviously an extreme situation in an enclosed space where, you know, it is a life and death situation. And I know that there were a couple of people who got involved, but they got involved in the sense that they were kind of helping to restrain him. And a lot of other people pulled out their phones, which is a really natural response. What do you recommend someone to do in a situation like that, where there is a life at stake? You know, in that particular case, you know, one of the things we always tell people is to prioritize their own safety. And in the case where somebody is actively being killed, right, um, it's it's obviously a very unsafe environment. And yet still, there are likely things that people can do to disrupt the situation or to stop the situation from happening without necessarily physically intervening. The first D of bystander intervention is to create a distraction. So that could be going up to the person who is being harassed and having a conversation. Obviously, that wouldn't work in the, the case of, of Jordan Neely. But it could also be things like, you know, um, setting off a emergency alarm on the train or spilling a bunch of like water or coffee all over the people who are in the altercation as a way to kind of de-escalate or create chaos in the situation to get the person to temporarily stop. The second D of bystander interventions delegate, so finding somebody else to help. And that, you know, um, oftentimes uh, can be somebody in a position of authority, but it can also be the person next to you. If you are going to intervene, you're going to want to do that with somebody, somebody else, or at least knowing that somebody else has your back. 
Um, the third one, which we saw happen, was document. Um, what we recommend that people do is only to use document if there's somebody else already intervening. You obviously don't want to create a situation of documentation while, while the abuse is, is ongoing and, and somebody's literally dying. We also recommend with documentation that you give the documentation to the person who was harassed, which was obviously impossible in this situation. Documentation can be a very powerful tool to bring social awareness to something, but it can only really be used to bring social awareness uh, to an incident after it's happened because of the nature of the form. So it's not always a great fit, but certainly if you do it, you want to make sure that somebody else is doing something else first. The fourth one is delay, so checking in on the person. Um, it seems like in this instance, there was some amount of chaos as to like who the problem was, right? Um, who who was the who was the person who was who needed restraint? And so some sort of check-in there um, could have potentially been supported, particularly had it happened earlier on before it was a fully escalated dynamic. Um, and then the last one is direct intervention, which is where you are literally saying, you know, stop that. Uh, let him go, leave him alone, and really focusing your attention on the person who, in this case, was being attacked. When we talk about bystander intervention, we are most often talking about it in the format of um, dealing with harassment or in microaggressions, or when the hate or harassment is at a level of really creating a culture of hate or disrespect. At the point at which violence is occurring, um, those strategies all still work, um, but become much more challenging to have some sort of a, a positive outcome. And yet still, I think there were a number of them that could have been effective um, with Jordan Neely. What is the responsibility of a bystander? I mean, how much responsibility do the people, you know, who were in the car who did nothing bear in the end result? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, and I think that the first priority of a bystander, or the first priority of anyone intervening in a moment of crisis really has to be their own safety. And you have to hold that as priority. And that safety assessment can be related to the, the scenario. Are there weapons? Um, are there other people around who could protect you? What are your uh, identities? Are you marginalized in some way? Are you a person of color and this appears to be racist harassment? Then what are your limitations? Are you in a wheelchair? Do you have your kids with you? You know, I think ultimately the responsibility lies with the person creating the violence or the harm to stop the violence or the harm. Um, it doesn't lie with the bystander or the person being attacked in that moment. Um, that being said, we all care about each other and we want things that we can do. And if there's things that we can do that preserve our own safety in a meaningful way while simultaneously helping somebody who's being attacked, um, that's really where the, the sweet spot sits. And I know you talked about the five Ds. Could you kind of go over some of the other things that you guys talk about in your bystander trainings? Yeah, when we talk, when we, we do bystander intervention training, we talk a lot about what the spectrum of disrespect looks like, how it starts with things like microaggressions and can lead all the way up into things like assault. We also talk about the impacts of harassment. Oftentimes people are like, yeah, well, we know it happens, but like, does it really matter? Um, so getting well acquainted with the impacts that harassment is having on the audience um, and also that we're seeing in our communities 
And then we talk about reasons why people don't intervene, not so much for the sake of uh, shaming them into intervening, but really for the sake of them identifying what are their fears when it comes to comes to intervention, whether it be safety, a fear that it's going to turn on them, a concern that they don't have the full story, they, they don't have the context, nobody else is doing anything, you know, that they're concerned about showing up as a white savior or a male savior, whatever it may be, we really want people to name those for themselves so that then when they do show up as a bystander, they're able to pick one of the Ds that responds to them best or most. And so, um, and, and that addresses whatever their concerns are. We invite them to hold those concerns as true. And then we do practice scenarios at the end. What do those look like? We talk about various scenarios of, of hate and harassment um, across, you know, public spaces, workspaces, online spaces, depending on the particular training, and invite people to pick which one of the Ds they would use. There's no wrong answer. It's just really about being able to adapt that D to the moment of harassment to make it work. You said it can start with something as small as microaggressions leading all the way to physical violence. Should bystanders be getting involved on the lower end of the scale too? Yeah, because what we see, and and look, this goes, obviously we're talking about extreme form of violence, but this is even, you know, the FBI's advice when addressing all of these active shooter moments that are happening around the country right now. The number one preventative factor to these moments of extreme violence is having a culture of respect and care for one another. And that's ultimately what bystander intervention is. All of these tactics are designed to de-escalate the situation and show care for the person being harassed and set a boundary about what kind of world we want to live in. Um, and so when we do intervene in the moments of microaggressions or comments about how you look or your body or inappropriate touching, right? When we intervene in those moments, it creates a world where things like full-on groping or stalking become a little bit less okay, right? And we create a world where groping and stalking are a little bit less okay. It also creates a world where things like rape and murder are less okay too. And so it's really about establishing that foundation um, of what we want to live in and re reinforcing that when the incidences are still, you know, relatively small before it escalates all the way up into extreme hate. And I know the past few years have been weird years. You know, we've dealt with the pandemic. New York City has changed a lot. There's been, you know, a homeless crisis, a mental health crisis. Have you found that more people are interested in learning how to be active bystanders? Or there's kind of a problem where more people are becoming numb and just kind of dealing with themselves and staring at their phones? We're actually seeing a tremendous, tremendous surge. So uh, before the pandemic in 2019, we trained about 5,000 people. 2020, we trained about 25,000 people. 2021, we trained um, a quarter of a million people. Um, and that has just continued forward. So um, we see a huge surge in demand for this because I think people realize other than the pandemic, the other thing that has really happened is certainly the rise in anti-API hate, um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And on a bigger scale, we've also seen, you know what, I've been doing this work for 18 years. And when I started doing this work, we would make the case, right? That when you have a world where lower forms of, of violence are allowed, it creates a world where more extreme forms of violence are allowed. The same thing I just talked to you about, right? And people would be like, 
Oh, that's so interesting. That's fascinating. Like it was an intellectually interesting mind experiment, but there was no felt sense that it was true. Now what we've seen, I think, particularly, you know, after the 2016 election, where we also saw the rise in anti-Islamophobic hate, we saw Me Too, we've really, really seen this narrative unfolding itself for, you know, the past seven years or so um, about what you say matters the way that you talk to people matters, that the way that you talk to people and what you say can equate to very direct and ultimately deadly forms of violence. Now, when we talk about that, um, people are like, of course, there's a felt sense that of course that is true because we have lived through that narrative really being um, drawn over and over and over again for us. And so I think people are activated because no longer is the move to address hate and harassment just to not hate or harass, right? Um, now it is about like, well, how can I actually meaningfully contribute um, to this world that I want to live in to prevent these atrocities from continuing to happen? And I wanted to circle back to one other thing you said um, that you talked about during your bystander trainings, and that's the impact of harassment. Can you touch on that? Harassment um, has a few impacts. One is a emotional and psychological impact. So even though you know it is a, a you know a lower form on the spectrum of violence, um, what we see is that because it's so persistent in people's lives and so pervasive, that it will mirror um, psychologically um, the same impacts as more extreme forms of violence. So we see a lot of instances of anxiety in particular or fear. We're also seeing depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, up to and including suicide as a result of harassment. The second one that we really see is financial and social. The fear of harassment, the persistent fear that you are not safe starts to really affect people in a meaningful way. So, and you know, in the case of Jordan Neely, right, people become scared to ride the subway. That then has a financial impact, either because they're not able to get to work or they quit their jobs, or because they're taking a car service to work or leaving early to work and needing more time with their babysitter, whatever it is. And of course, the social impact too of making decisions about when we go out and is it really worth it? And is it worth risking, you know, my own sense of safety and well-being to go out tonight? And oftentimes that answer will be no, which of course then create then creates you know continued. Uh, isolation. And then the third piece of it is community. Um, I think that the fact that hate and harassment and violence are so um, common in our world um, really creates division between individuals, which is important because we don't know if that person is somebody who's going to do that. You know, we don't, we can't assume that our neighbor has good intentions or that if even if we tell our neighbor hello, that they'll respond with hello. And so all of these sort of create a uh, really, I think, deep impact on the community where ultimately we all have the right to feel safe walking down the street, being online, going to work. Right to Be hosts several free virtual bystander training sessions each month. You can learn more about the organization and check out the training calendar by clicking the link in our show notes. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. For more stories like this, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika.
You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.